for this intro, I have a lot prepared. I know. We just, I mean, go, Coop, go. So this is a uh, awareness raising opportunity for a root vegetable. Okay. <laughs> Has this vegetable, root vegetable, changed your life in some way? Uh, just in the way that I get to pronounce its name. I've never had it. I've never seen one in person. And I think that's a problem. Okay. And I know what you're thinking, carrot. Yeah. No, I have had carrots. <laughs> that's why you wear glasses because you've never eaten carrots that's, before. That's yeah. That's right. Well, how about this? What if I say name a root vegetable? What are you gonna say? Uh, a root. Does that just mean it grows like yeah, as a potato, root, like an onion? Like an onion, potato. Okay. Uh, carrot. Carrot. Turnip. Turnip green. Yeah, I don't know anything. That's else. all. You know. You know. You know one that's blatantly you that you've forgotten. So. What What did I forget, Coop? A rutabaga. <laughs> What's a rutabaga, Coop? Zach, I am literally on the, not even fully on the wiki page, but I just Googled rutabaga and I'm going to read the wiki. Okay. It's a uh, root vegetable from Brassica napis, which also includes rapeseed. That's what a rutabaga is. So here's the backstory here. Cooper, the word rutabaga popped into Cooper's and head. I'd heard it probably years ago. And he Googled it. Yeah. And this is what it is. And this is what it is. I knew it was a food. I didn't know that it was a root vegetable. Uh, let's click on the history. Yeah, where does it come from? The first known printed reference to rutabaga comes from the Swiss botanist Gaspard Bauhin. That is what you're going to... I think you have to name your first child that. Uh, Gaspard? Gaspard. Gas, G-A-S-P-A-R-D. Gaspard. Gaspard McCullough. Gaspard McCullough. It might work. Zach, what do you think a rutabaga tastes like? Um, I'm kind of, in my head, I'm kind of thinking of a rubber tire. Yeah, if I'm being honest, a boot. like a rubber sole, <laughs> kind of <boot>. similar. Yeah, <laughs> similar the rubber, the rubber flavor. Yeah, yeah, Zach, you're someone that has a big passion of gardening. Mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> do you want me to explain? Yeah, I'd love for you to go into that a little bit. My the history of my gardening. Yeah, the history. I, I the only really experience I have with gardening was in college. Actually, with yeah. you, we took care of the grass outside of our. Uh, our apartment, our yeah, last house. We of, he means he would walk all throughout the earth, gather things on his shoes, and then walk on the ground <laughs> to put, things to on put the them grass. there. Well, I was also thinking to take care of the grass whenever we would cook bacon oh, in our house. Yes. We would just walk outside, and we had one just burn hole where we would just pour all our we, grease. We, we had a cast iron pan. Yeah, bless your wife, at the time <laughs> yeah. girlfriend, girlfriend. Yeah, and she got you a gift. That she was hoping. Yeah. Would bless her. It would bless her. Yeah. Maybe it has. It has. has. Yeah, it has. And she married you? And yeah. you married her, actually. I did, actually. So that is my, the extent of my gardening. And yeah. so I don't know what a rutabaga is. Yeah. So It also sounds like a camper. A Winnebaga? Is that what that's called? Uh, I literally have no idea what a Winnebaga is. That also is a fun word. Uh, here, here's I'll the, Google just, Winnebago while you talk. Okay, just, just, I Googled what does a rutabaga taste like. Also, I know what you're thinking. What on earth am I listening to? <laughs> yeah. And guys, welcome so, to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Sometimes it's good to have just an off the cuff intro. I literally just said rutabaga and was like, let's do an intro. And he's mm. like, All right. But what does a rutabaga taste like? Great question, Zach. The fact that rutabagas are a cross between turnips and cabbage is evident in the flavor. Uh, the taste is a bit milder than a turnips when raw and buttery and sweet savory, though still a bit bitter when cooked. So as soon as it comes out of the ground as a root, it's buttery. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you're wondering how did I get this information, just Google rutabaga taste. <laughs> and this information is actually rather new to the internet. It was posted January 25th, 
2019. Wow. So two that, years ago. Yeah, and we learned 1602. Was that what I said? Yeah. What, By Gasparin. 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 <laughs> so rutabagas have been tasted many times. So like this must be a pretty well established. Um, taste taste and palate of yeah. what a rutabaga tastes like what were you googling uh winnebago okay winnebago winnebago is a well <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a camper like okay. one of those campers you drive yeah. and you also and it like goes over the cab mm. but when i typed in winnebago definition it's a member of the north american people formerly living in eastern wisconsin and now mainly in southern wisconsin and nebraska <laughs> So shout out to all you Winnebago's out there. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my Winnebago co-host, Cooper McCullough. Never even been to the state of Wisconsin, but I'd be happy to go one day. I've never been to Wisconsin, and I've never eaten a rutabaga. Ah, we have so much in common. Two things that we could do together at once. That would be, what if we one day, guys, here's the deal. Yeah. We'll start a GoFundMe. Okay. For plane tickets. Monica, will you start a GoFundMe? Monica's going to get that put together for us. Thank and you. if you guys would go ahead and fund our trip to Wisconsin, mm. and I'm sure rutabagas are not expensive. I'm sure we could pick them up at a We'll cover the Walmart. rutabagas if they cover the flight. Oh. Are, you, are the listeners, are you willing to make that deal? Guys, we could do some good intros from there. I bet, I bet <laughs> that the microphone's from that really trip. good in that state. I bet they do. Speaking of microphones sounding really oh, good, Cooper. Zach, you're a wizard. <laughs> Today we have Jason Isaacs. He is the director of the Life Powered Initiative at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Cooper, you and I both lived through a pretty historically Texan event this year. Mm, and uh, it was when I was shivering. Yes, the you snowpocalypse. Had, you had a sleepover. You, uh, we did. You, you spent the night. I spent the night at you, you and your bride's house. Yeah, that was kind of awesome. It was kind of awesome. So, I mean, the thing is, we were mad about it because it never happened while we were in college. Mm -hmm. It could have been awesome when we were we, in college. We, we went to Dallas Baptist University. Go yep. Patriots. Go Pats. very proud of that. We don't get paid. No. Zach actually does get paid. I do get by paid. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't. Different. I mm -hmm. paid them. Yes, actually. a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, they have the greatest. But not too much money because they were good with scholarships and everything. Right, so you right. should look into yeah, it absolutely. if you're uh, if you're looking at college. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Sponsor. <laughs> Soon. Um, so what I was saying was they have great hills. And yeah. we wanted to to sled on them. When yeah. you're like, oh, if it snows one time, it's amazing. Once. My senior year of high school, in Dallas area, snow. I'm like, oh, it's gonna yeah. do that when I'm in college. Then yeah. our post-graduation year, Snowmageddon. We were ripped off. Ridiculous. Snowmageddon happens, but then that also causes a lot of power outages. Why? Because supply and demand. There was a lot of demand, not enough supply because of the frozen tundra yeah. that was upon us. When your pipes freeze, your power goes out, Zach. Bummer. It's <laughs> science. Science rules. Anyway, I've thought, Cooper, we need to know what happened and we need to make sure it doesn't happen again. And part of my goal with this podcast, our goal with this podcast, is that we are educating the next generation of leaders. And that includes all facets of life, whether energy, whether leadership, whether politics, whether the Christian faith, whatever that might yeah. be, we want to educate you. So and specifically this one, energy made this one. Energy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was good. That was good. Uh, Coop. I'm quick on my feet. I'm proud of you. Anyway, so we want to talk about what that looks like. And I feel like everyone has heard of the Green New Deal. Have you heard of the Green New Deal? Uh, Do you know what it means? Thumb, which <laughs> is what you really should have tied this Which is what in. I am. Yeah, you're a green thumb. I am a green thumb. So I want we, we break down what the Green New Deal is, why it's a bad idea, and what we should do about it. Okay? So it's okay that some ideas are bad. It's okay. Yeah. I'm not mad at you. It's not mad. It's like single ply toilet paper. I just want yeah. <laughs> just be better. Yeah. Be more. 
Anyway, so we talk about what happened in Texas and how the next generation of leaders can make sure it doesn't happen again. I like having heaters. And and I like having air conditioning when it's hot outside. And I like having water in my pipes. (laughs) I mean... Put a water on my pipe and smoke it. Let's do it. Speaking of that, let's send it over to the interview. Cooper, here he is, Mr. Jason Isaacs. Well, Jason, it's so nice to meet you, and, and I'm so excited and I'm delighted to have you on the Next Generation Leader podcast. So I want you first to just start by introducing yourself, kind of who are you, how did you get to where you are today at the Texas Public Policy Foundation? Sure, Zach. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm Jason Isaac. I'm the director of the Life Powered Project at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Our short mission statement is to raise America's energy IQ. Our longer mission statement is to make the connection between access to affordable, reliable energy and human flourishing. Uh, Prior to joining the foundation, I served four terms in the Texas House of Representatives, representing Blanco and Hayes counties in the Texas Hill Country. I was first elected in 2010 and then uh, elected, re-elected, I guess, three times uh, and then term limited myself and served for eight years. Uh, Prior to that, I worked in the trucking industry, marketing technology to trucking companies. Uh, I was just a sales guy traveling around the state and around the country, quite honestly, uh, trying to help trucking companies become safer and more efficient and more profitable and Uh, That's kind of really what led me into politics in the first place. I got frustrated with some taxing policies that were making it harder for me to make a living and provide for my family and tired of talking about, oh, I'll do something in a couple of years. I'll do something in a couple of years. I just really got tired of kind of telling myself I'll wait and do it later and and really just called my own bluff and said, hey, if you're going to get frustrated, there's there's a way to make a change and it's to get involved and uh, ran for office in 2010, was really naive and ran against the second most proficient fundraiser in the tech, Texas House and even had people that I ideologically aligned with that tried to talk me out of running. They said, no, we'd, 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 please don't run. Um, your your opponent will spend a million dollars and you're going to kill us down ballot. And yeah. actually, they were wrong. He spent two million dollars. It was one of the top five most expensive races in the in the state in 2010. And we came out on top by eight points and uh, just enjoyed my time in office, but needed yeah. to get back to making a living. So I could, I thought it was hard to provide for my family going into politics. And then I got yeah. into politics. And it was really hard to provide for my family. Right. And I mean, you, you took the precedent set by Washington, the first president of serving only eight years, but prior to that, even similar to Washington, you kind of felt that call and it's something that bothered you, something that was hurting you making a living. And so you kind of have that burden for it and you you run for it to make a difference. Before we get into any of the kind of what we want to talk about, what was that decision like? Because I think a lot of people have something that either is frustrating them or is feeling like they are being pulled in this direction, but they don't have the courage to really step out and do something about it. So what would you say to that person who's listening right now? Uh, you, you know, you've got to really just step up and, mm-hmm. and you can either complain about it and not do anything. But if you if you have this desire to step up and serve, then you really need to do it. And for us, that was a conversation I had with my wife for months going into the process. And, and she was behind me 100 percent. And and we just did. We went and filled out some paperwork, paid seven hundred and fifty dollars to get onto the ballot. And then just went out and for really 10 months and three days straight, 
uh, during this campaign, although we had been heavily involved in the community where we live before that, but this kind of expanded our community. It was three counties at the time, hadn't spent a lot of time in Caldwell County, kind of the barbecue, one of the barbecue belt areas of Texas and Luling and Lockhart. And so I got to spend a lot of time visiting with people in that county and then Blanco County. And so it it was us getting out of our comfort zone, going to events and parades and shaking hands and visiting with people and listening to people uh, from three counties, a couple hundred thousand people. And uh, it, we really enjoyed it, but we worked our tails off for 10 months and three days and came out ahead uh, and then had to, to pivot from campaigning to actually serving and, and being in the legislature. And at that point in time, you almost have a lot more people that want your ear um, mm. because you may not have seen people on the campaign trail, but there's something that they want from you or, or want you to hear about. Uh, and, yeah. and so you, you wind up listening a lot. It's a great yeah, opportunity. I, mean, I bet. I love that just story of calling your own bluff and saying, if you're going to complain about this or be frustrated by it, do something about it. I think there's a lot to learn there, but that's not the topic of what we're going to talk about. We really want to raise America and raise the next generation of leaders, energy IQ and wondering what is, especially for me living in Dallas and living in Texas, we just came out of February with the snowpocalypse of something that we were not expecting. And it kind of shook things up in the energy grid and it's still having some issues figuring out how we're going to move forward. So I want to start by just in your wheelhouse, the life powered initiative, what is y'all's goal? What what do y'all do and what are y'all pushing for? Yeah, so in light of, and it's interesting because February happened and we had already actually been pushing for more, more grid resiliency since last year. We came out with our legislative action agenda items through the mm -hmm. Texas Public Policy Foundation and picked some bills that we wanted to get behind. We wanted to end subsidies for, for, for energy. Uh, there's this chapter 313 property tax abatement. Property tax is a huge battle at the Texas Public yeah. Policy Foundation. We're trying to find ways to reduce that burden and eliminate that burden for homeowners uh, and, and Texans throughout the entire state. And one of the ways you do that is you get rid of market distorting policies like Chapter 313, which is a property tax exemption for uh, economic development. And studies have shown that over 85% of the projects that receive this tax exemption would have built a project anyways. If it's a company from out of state, they would have relocated to Texas anyways. So we have this incentive for less than 15% of the companies uh, that, that really say they needed it. it. It's just appalling. It's absurd. It increases the tax, the property tax burden on those of us that are paying property taxes. Uh, and we wanted to resolve that. Yeah. So get rid of that subsidy, not just for one type of form of energy, but eliminate the entire thing altogether. Uh, and then we had some ideas on having dispatchable electricity. We've seen uh, over the last decade a two over 200% increase in installed capacity of variable forms of electricity. These unreliable generators, typically wind and solar, they produce electricity when the wind blows or when the sun shines. And it's not dispatchable. It's not readily available electricity. So we wanted to lead and have some dispatchable requirements because, and I, I, I look back and joke a little bit now, I made the mistake of writing an op-ed warning ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, in 20, it was 2020, I think July is when I published it and said, had it not been for the COVID shutdowns, we would be having rolling outages in August. And we almost had rolling outages with the shutdowns in 2020. We got really close in 2019, and it's because our population, our GDP, our demand for energy is increasing, but the amount of reliable energy that we have on the grid 
over the last eight years has decreased nearly 5%. And it's these thermal generators, natural gas, coal, and nuclear are being priced out of the market. You have incredible subsidies that pick one form of electricity generation over another, and the reliable forms can't compete. And that's why we're seeing a decrease in those forms of generation in the energy state of the world, really, in Texas. And that shouldn't be the case. Yeah. So we're trying to really have some requirements for dispatchable electricity, electricity on demand, like natural gas, coal, and nuclear deliver uh, for all forms of electricity on the grid. And these are ideas that we had going into the legislative session, weren't gaining a lot of traction. And then February happens. And unfortunately, now our ideas are falling uh, not on deaf ears anymore. They're yeah. following on ears that are listening uh, intently. And, and we're seeing several ideas work their way through the legislative process now, not as quickly and uh, as we'd hoped. Uh, but again, cautiously optimistic, we're going to see some progress by the end of the legislative session. Right. And you mentioned that before even February, there was a chance, thankfully, that and not thankfully, but we had the lockdowns because of our our population is growing in Texas, that we had a, a chance. We were close to having those rolling blackouts before even the a, a snowstorm of a lifetime came through. Yeah, so why actually having that? my first legislative session in, in February of 2011, we had rolling outages because yeah. we didn't have, and we had a, a freeze. It wasn't near as bad as a freeze as we had in February, 2021. Right. Um, and it just, Again, we, we have, when you have market distorting policies that favor one type of generation, the market is going to respond. And that's why you've seen an over 200% increase of wind and solar installed capacity in Texas. So it's now 33% of our grid we're dependent on is variable electric generation, 33%. During the freeze on February 15th, 8% of our electricity was coming from wind and solar. 91% was coming from natural gas coal and nuclear, which is only 66% of our grid. So they're right. way outperforming what they should be doing. And the, the variable unreliable source is underperforming significantly. It's now a third of our grid. Hmm. Costs, aren't, aren't, costs aren't decreasing. Uh, and actually, they're looking for more subsidies uh, for wind and solar so that they can build more of it, more unreliable variable electricity, which is just going to be incredibly more detrimental to the state of Texas. Right. And we can have more blackouts in the future whenever we don't have a freeze like we had in February. Yeah. And you mentioned it'll likely happen this August. We'll probably have yeah. some rolling outages this August because as the economy is boosting back up, yeah. uh, we just don't have the generation that's built. And it's because, again, the market, we don't want the government going out and building uh, right. power plants. We don't want subsidized. We, we don't want to go back into a regulated market. We, we need mm -hmm. uh, policies and pricing that value reliability. And right now we don't have anything that values reliability. Yeah. And, and we see these blackouts sometimes in California as well, in like the San Francisco area. And it's just when it gets hot, like it's typical in the summer and then yeah. we could have those issues now in Texas. So what's the difference between and we hear the, the Texas style blackouts more now than we used to. But what is the difference between the California style blackouts and the Texas style blackouts? So well, California is, is basically ahead of us on their push to go 100% renewable. And it's it's unfortunate that we're trending in that direction here in Texas. Yeah. Uh, but this these California-style blackouts that they had last August was they just don't have enough electric generation to meet demand. 
and there's not enough to import from their other states. This is one of the reasons we don't want to be part of that Western interchange or Eastern interchange grid, because we don't want to be subject to the whims of politicians in California or subject right. to the whims of politicians in you know Massachusetts or uh, New York, or Pennsylvania. Uh, because what's happening right now in California, they're actually going out and securing and buying electricity for this summer. It's likely that Gavin Newsom will be up for recall election. And the last thing he wants before being recalled is for his citizens that he's supposed to be serving to not have electricity. Right. And so right. they're going out. Bad. Yeah, they're going out and buying electricity now for the summer. So what's going to happen is those surrounding states aren't going to have enough electricity to serve their constituents. And the, it's it's Nevada, it's Oregon, Washington, um, Arizona, New Mexico. Those states that are part of the Western Interchange are going to be the ones that are you know, going to be experiencing the rolling outages likely this summer as demand increases significantly. Huh, that's very interesting. And even how they're all connected. Now, you mentioned ERCOT, and they're getting a lot of uh, FaceTime these days after February, and people are starting to kind of wake up to what they are and what they do. So what are they? What do they do? And how? Because Texas is on its own grid. Can you kind of explain that to people who don't understand how that works? Yeah. And if you look at a map of the ERCOT grid, it's about 90 percent of Texans. There are some people in East Texas, uh, some people in El Paso and some people in the Panhandle that aren't on our grid. They're on the, the either Eastern or Western interchange uh, in Lubbock and the Panhandle. They'll be coming onto the grid and joining ERCOT in July. But ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, is this nonprofit organization that was created decades ago to really manage the grid. And their board makeup is basically the people that are, that are members of their organization, whether it's generators or transmission companies uh, or, or retail electric providers. And then they essentially self-appoint the board. And this was something that came up to light during the freeze. It was like, okay, who's leading ERCOT? Okay, we've yeah. got the president. We see who, who the, 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 like the chief executive is, but Who's the board? And you find out that uh, there's, I think, maybe 11 or 13 people that are on the board and five of them don't even live in ERCOT. They live mm -hmm. in other states. One of them, the, the former head of the, the board, was leading the Green New Deal in Michigan. Well, guess what policy she's going to be supportive of for Texans? Right. The Green New Deal, 100% renewable. And, and that's... Uh, we found out what it's like to start making steps towards the Green New Deal on, on the week of Valentine's Day in February. That's what mm -hmm. you're going to have. You're going to have four and a half million people without electricity. You're going to have 111 people dead. Uh, and it's only going to continue to get worse if we don't make some significant changes. Now, the Public Utility Commission, these are three appointed commissioners by the governor, have oversight over ERCOT. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that, that's almost another board uh, that has some, some regulatory authority over the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. And you see a lot of young people these days kind of trending towards the Green New Deal and saying yes, but then the only response we get is from uh, policymakers probably on the right of saying, no, Green New Deal bad. But there's no real, I don't really know why. Like, why is Green New Deal bad? I realize that you're, we're trending more towards renewables, as you'd say, but they aren't reliable. And, and we know that because the wind's not blowing, you're not going to have any energy. If the sun's not out, you're not going to have any energy. But kind of give us the case against the Green New Deal. Why why should we not support it? Yeah, there's just been this movement to support renewables and it's the panacea and it's going to save us and that the doom and gloom, everything's bad right now. But the facts of the matter is everything is not bad. Everything's actually fantastic. Yeah. Over the last hundred years, there's been a 99% reduction in deaths from people from severe weather related events. 
So if that's a climate crisis, we're doing really, really well. The mm-hmm. facts don't stand up about temperature increases, about sea level rising, about polar bears. Polar bears are flourishing. Now, these are just some of the statistics that people think are all bad, and they're not. Right. And in the United States, we're a world leader in clean air. And this is something that I presented to, to the U.S. Senate earlier this week. Uh, and one of the ladies that was testifying against my position said, would you, would you send me your information on clean air? I didn't know that. And because over the last 50 years, the United States has reduced harmful pollution 77 percent. And that and that's by far leaps and abounds from any other country. We're the only yeah. highly populated country, I think over 50 million in population that meets the World Health Organization standards for safe air. The only country over 50 million. We're world leaders in clean air. People don't know that. They think that we're doing bad things. They think that yeah. oil and gas are killing people, but they're really not. They're necessary for life on Earth. Yeah. Uh, and so, and then you look at water. Uh, prior to 1970, less than 40% of our municipal water systems met the lowest standards. Less mm-hmm. than 40%. Today, over 90% of our municipal water systems meet the highest standards. We're number one when it comes to access to clean and safe drinking water. And so these are some of the messages that we like to talk to people about and help raise their IQ on our environmental leadership. And if anything, we want to improve the global environment. The rest of the world should be meeting our standards. And they're not anywhere close. They could care less. I testified, as I mentioned earlier this week, to the Clean Air Subcommittee in the U.S. Senate about uh, Chinese pollution. And I said, of all the technology the Chinese steal from us, it'd be nice if they'd utilize our pollution control technology. <laughs> right. There's a 65% increase in ozone in Southern California that is directly attributed to Asian air pollution making its way across the Pacific Ocean. Mm. And, so, and, and then a lot of people will get on this religion about CO2. And I'm like, well, hey, if you're talking about CO2 emissions, you might want to put down your Topo Chico because right. you're actually ingesting more CO2 than what's in the environment and it's not killing you. And you know, I, I, I joke a little bit, but it is, it's true. You are yeah. ingesting more CO2 than the environment and it's not killing you. But mm-hmm. you would think that some leftist would think that CO2 or can of LaCroix or Waterloo or Topo Chico is a, you know, a, a terrorist weapon. It's right. not, uh, it's necessary for life on earth. And as we produce, as we burn more fossil fuels, humans have a slight, slight impact on the amount of CO2 emissions that are in, uh, released on the earth. But as more CO2, you get more green earth and you look yeah. at NASA and you're track, we're tracking this. So the left has really demonized CO2 because they figure that that's how they can control everything. That's how they can get rid of fossil fuels. And even NBC reported just a, a weeks ago that CO2 emissions declined as a whole on, on Earth last year, but the CO2 count still ticked up. Mm-hmm. And they, they measure this at an island in Hawaii. Um, <laughs> and, and, but so CO2 parts per million, we're at 417 parts per million now of CO2 in the atmosphere. So keep in mind, do the math, because a lot of politicians say we're at 417 parts per million. But yeah. if you do the math, that's 0.0417%. So mm-hmm. 0.0417%. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's really, it's a small amount. 
So you know, I'll wrap up real quick talking about CO2 yeah. because that's what the Green New Deal plans to do. That's what all these, the Paris uh, Climate Accord, yeah. all these plans, whether they're a local municipal plan, because they're all over the country, all over Texas, these municipalities talking about going carbon-free emissions. We're going to be net zero. Net zero means zero jobs. It means zero environmental <laughs> yeah. benefit. So if you do eliminate all of the CO2 emissions in the United States by 2030, this is doubling President Biden's goal. If you eliminate all the CO2 emissions by 2030 in the United States, the impact on the temperature by 2100 is less than two-tenths of a degree. Mm-hmm. But you've increased costs significantly. Your loss yeah. of life is, is through the roof because people don't have electricity. And if there's one thing that we proved in Texas, having electricity in February is a lot more important than having it in August. We think air conditioning is really nice. Right. It's not nearly as problematic as, as freezing temperatures, which are much more of a safety issue. Truly. And you hear a lot of people talk about the issue of emissions and emissions are causing our climate to change and that things are, I mean, obviously you mentioned, you mentioned the polar bears, those poor, poor polar bears out in the Arctic, but what, what is this population has gone from 9,000 in 1970 to 40,000 today. So again, yeah. if that's our barometric measurement for <laughs> climate change, let's hang up the mission accomplished banner. We're, we're done. We won. Right. We're not worried about Dallas in February or August. We're worried about the polar bears, yeah. but that's beside the point. Uh, if we're trying to lower emissions, what is the effect that fossil fuels has on emissions? Why? What is their obsession with wanting to get rid of fossil fuels? If it truly, if the numbers show that it's not really emitting that much. Yeah. And that's, it's interesting because people will get vague and they'll talk about emissions. Yeah. They'll talk about greenhouse gas emissions. Well, guess what? We've reduced harmful pollutants 77 percent in the last 50 years so there we go world leader in that oh well let's talk about greenhouse gas emissions well the most prevalent and most warming greenhouse gas on the face of the earth um, is water vapor so when aoc writes the green new deal which is a resolution that i've read repeatedly and calls for the elimination of all greenhouse gases not the elimination of all greenhouse gas emissions the elimination of all greenhouse gases She's talking about eliminating water vapor, which is necessary for life on Earth, along with CO2. Now, reducing emissions, that's fine. And that's how we've improved human health in the United States. And we've done that while using more energy, while using more fossil fuels. Again, it it started in the 60s. People think, oh, it's just because the Clean Air Act and and regulations got strengthened. uh, And that's why we're world leader in clean air, if, if I can even get them to admit that we're a world leader in clean air. But you look at what happened in the 60s with the invention of the catalytic converter and implementation of it. Companies were adapting. The market was adapting. Americans wanted cleaner air. You look at cities in Pittsburgh and the air quality was horrible. Some of those old pictures, the rivers were on fire there. I mean, it was absolutely awful. And, And these businesses responded because people were getting up in arms about it. And then you have politicians that come along and believe me, I've been there. We come along and we pass a bill that does something that's already being done. And we pat ourselves on the back saying we fixed yeah. this. And that's what happened with, with states implementing plans similar to the Clean Air Act and then ultimately the Clean Air Act. Uh, it, but yeah, it's, and I was, believe me, I was with Senator Markey earlier this week and he's talking about emissions, but he won't talk about specific emissions. Are we going to talk about the ones that cause humans harm? Or are we going to talk about CO2 and O2, which uh, again are necessary for life on earth? And they don't want to get into that. 
Mm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So if you were to talk, speaking to directly to the next generation leaders, the people who are going to be taking the torch on this issue in the next few years, how do we lower emissions, save money and boost reliability? What is what is your plan for that? Well, the demonization of nuclear is one aspect. You look at the amount of electricity that's been produced by nuclear in Texas over the last 20 years, and it's five gigawatts of electricity. It's a flat line. It's been a flat line for decades. Yeah. But the the regulatory hurdles to build new nuclear, the cost, the lawsuits that you have to deal with, this is the cleanest form of electric generation on the face of the earth. It's the is it just scary? Like because it's it, called nuclear? Yeah, it's it's people again, this started back in the 60s with nukes and, and thinking right. that you're making bombs. It's not at all. Yeah. Uh, it's and then you have really, really poor craftsmanship in Chernobyl, and you have some incidences that happens there uh, where they had to vacate a town. Uh, and then Fukushima, you had a, a tsunami and that, that destroyed Fukushima. Well, that's not, a, those aren't issues in Texas. Right. And we should be building more nuclear. Michael Schellenberger does a great job of advocating for this. He's written a book called Apocalypse Never. I've done a live stream with him. Uh, very educational, very informational. Highly encourage people to read his books. But he is a pro-nuclear advocate. Yeah. And, and he's really a, an advocate for affordable, reliable electricity and energy. And, and nuclear is great. It's great baseload. Now, if you get really cold temperatures or really hot temperatures, you can't ramp it up and ramp it back down like you can with coal and natural gas. And so one of the ways and, and the ways that we have reduced emissions in the U.S. is our pollution control technology. We put bag houses on asphalt plants, on concrete plants and power plants. Uh, and our vehicles are cleaner now than what they were. They burn cleaner because that's what consumers said they wanted decades ago. Yeah. And now they're incredibly efficient. And that's how uh, we have reduced emissions significantly. One, one thing to note, during the first couple of months of the COVID shutdowns in 2020, you had, you had air quality improvements in foreign countries. And you had the media coming out and saying that because we've eliminated 50% of the vehicles on the road, that our air quality in the United States has improved significantly. Well, we kept hearing this claim, not only from the media, but also from environmental and electric vehicle advocates, making the claim that because of these improvements that we needed to go 100% electric vehicles. Well, we're a research-based organization, Texas Public Policy Foundation. We're a 501c3 nonpartisan, nonprofit research-based organization. And so we went out and did the research and we looked at the air quality and you look at some cities in India and China and their air quality improved significantly during the first right. couple of months of the shutdown. Their manufacturing was down. So, and they're not going to use a pollution control technology anyways, because it does increase cost. But here in the United States, we had the same impact. Manufacturing was down, power generation was down, 50% fewer vehicles on the road. You actually had the city of Austin, the air quality during the first two months of the shutdown got worse. Right. And people's minds are blown like, wait a second, you had 50% fewer vehicles on the road and the air quality got worse. It was negligible. And there were several cities across the U.S. where it got worse, somewhere it improved slightly. But everything was just negligible, and it shows that here in the U.S., our air quality is practically near a natural state, that mm -hmm. weather, dust, pollen has more of an impact on air quality than, than pollution from automobiles and manufacturing and power generation. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around the, the research here, because why are we running towards these renewable outlets if we have numbers that say that 
if you do this, it's going to cost X amount of dollars and it's really only going to reduce temperature or affect the climate change by such a small margin. What, yeah, what's got, the disconnect? Uh, you've got extremely wealthy people with a lot of money that want to control every aspect of our lives, that want to drive us out of the oil and gas industry, that want to that want to make poverty adaptable and acceptable. It's not. It's neither. Uh, and we really have an opportunity to end poverty around the world. And you do that with access to affordable, reliable energy. Mm-hmm. There's 3.8 million people that die every year from lung illnesses attributed to indoor air pollution. And it's because they're burning things like wood and biomass, animal dung in their homes to cook their food and also to heat up their water that's extremely contaminated. There's some. There's a great video. It's a 13-year-old girl named Aisha. And the, if you just go to YouTube and look for Aisha, A-Y-S-H-A, and UNICEF, And watch this two-minute video of this 13-year-old girl in Ethiopia as she spends eight hours a day walking to collect water. It's unbelievable to me. She has a camel and some plastic bottles that she goes and fills up in a really dirty-looking river and then brings that back to her family. Now, women around the world are the ones that are typically burdened with collecting water and biomass to heat and cook food uh, for their homes. Uh, Katie, our communications manager, has done some research on this, and UNICEF has done research, and we've compiled that research, and it's 200 million hours a day that women spend collecting water. That doesn't include the time they spend to collect biomass. And so the fact that there are groups out there and people out there that don't want to loan money to countries that are investing in fossil fuel-based infrastructure is appalling to me. We brought this up to the Trump administration. It was changed. The World Bank, uh, UN weren't making funds available. And that policy changed during the Trump administration. And on day one of the Biden administration, they put that policy back in place that said no economic development loans to countries that are developing or investing in fossil fuel based infrastructure. And again, clean coal, natural gas, nuclear technology, those are great for affordable, reliable, dense energy. And so when I say dense energy, uh, talking about coal, this rock has a lot of British thermal units, a lot of BTUs, a gallon of gasoline has a lot of BTUs. It's very dense energy, natural gas, very dense energy. When you look at wind and solar, they're not. Wind requires, so if you take a three mile, three square mile is about the, the amount of land that's needed for a natural gas power plant. That's to power about a thousand homes. No, it's thousand megawatts, which is eight hundred thousand homes. Mm-hmm. That three miles includes not only the footprint of the power plant, but also all the pipelines and the land used for exploration and production of the natural gas. So three square miles. The comparison for solar is twenty-seven square miles, mm-hmm. and that's producing electricity only when the sun is shining. In wind, right. it's over a hundred square miles of habitat. Uh, So if the environmentalists are truly concerned about endangered species, the greatest threat to endangered species is loss of habitat. And here they are promoting things that take away an immense amount of habitat. It's really just become this religion that Michael Schellenberger writes about in his book, but it has become this this green religion that we have to go 100% renewable to save the planet. And 100% renewable destroys the planet and everyone living in it. It's so sad. And we see so many countries and and you think about Aisha who's having to walk so far and so long to get water, but we're wanting these countries to to go for these renewable uh, energy sources that one aren't reliable, but two, they're so expensive. 
So how do we pull people out of that, out of poverty by giving them energy? How do we provide that in other poorer countries? Because I think my generation is very driven by how can we help people? So using the energy sector, how can we help people? No, and that's, you're, you're right. Your generation is very moved on when you talk about poverty and energy poverty, and those are really one and the same thing. Wow. Uh, and that's that's a messaging point that we use. And there's a, a Dr. Scott Tinker. He's a Bureau of Economic Geologist for the University of Texas. Uh, brilliant PhD, has traveled all over the world and has a couple of movies. There's Switch and there's Switch On. And Switch On just became available, I believe, on Amazon Prime uh, and, and maybe Netflix as well. But it's this great movie that talks about some of his travels and some of the foreign countries that he goes to and where these women are collecting biomass. And they can. there's one day a year in this one city that he's visiting where they're allowed to buy wood. Only one day a year they can mm-hmm. buy it. And the amount of their wages that they use to buy wood is just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and, and you've got some of these countries near India and in India that are getting access to propane. It, propane has become one of these great commodities that's produced when you produce oil and gas. You actually get some byproducts. You get natural gas liquids that are used in manufacturing plastics and clothes that we wear, uh, our consumer electronic devices. All that stuff comes from oil and gas, natural gas production. Well, so does propane. And propane has become a great commodity that we can ship around the world, much like liquefied natural gas. So you have some people in there that are now getting propane to cook with clean gas in their homes for the first time. He shows this other lady who's using biogas. She's got this concrete bunker, if you will, at her home, and she takes animal dung, mixes it with water and puts it in there. And as it breaks down, it creates methane. It's bio natural gas that she can then cook with in her home to have clean gas. Now, I couldn't imagine, because there's this one scene where Dr. Tinker and this lady just picks up a, a pile of manure and he's like, mm. oh, can, can I help? And he shoves his hand and he's like, oh, this is warm. And it just, I'm like, Ugh, kind of gagging yeah. as I'm watching him do this because you can hear the sound effects. It's like this squishy noise as he mm. sticks his hands in and then he puts it into this bucket and starts mixing it with water and puts it into this concrete thing. and. So she can have gas to cook with at home that's clean, which is better for her health, her children's health. And I think that's the message that we need to be educating people on. And and you look at this economic prosperity and environmental leadership go hand in hand. Right. As a country gets more wealthy, as they get access to more energy, that's when their environmental leadership starts to skyrocket and they really start to get concerned about their water quality, their air quality. And I've visited some of these third world countries that are going through economic turmoil. I was in Egypt and Tunisia in 2012, right after the start of the Arab Spring. And just a little random background on me. I think I was 12 years old and I was taking my Boy Scout swimming merit badge and I was doing the swimming test in this open water and I show up and I have a piece of gum in my mouth, this big piece of bubble bubble gum. And I'm looking around for a trash can and I couldn't find a trash can. And so I'm like, well, I'll just try to swim with it because I don't want to spit it out. I don't want to litter. I don't want to put it in the water. Um, And I'm like, I'm a conservation environmentalist at heart. And so I wind up choking on my gum and failed my merit badge, had to retake it the next day. But it was all just because of, of waste. And so I'm very aware of waste. And the and gum is was, probably still digesting. Yeah, your, yeah. That's I what think, they yeah, tell you. It takes however long. Yeah, to, that's, that's like, what they oh always told me when I was little. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah, same thing. Um, but so here I am in Tunisia and Egypt in 2012, and I see trash piling up on the sides of the streets. 
And I'm like, that that's weird. Why, why aren't there dumpsters? Why aren't there trash cans? And I, I had almost had the gum incident happen again because I, as I was leaving the hotel one day, I put a piece of gum in my mouth and was chewing gum and I couldn't find a trash can to put it in. So I wind up folding it up in a business card and sticking it in my jacket for the day because there were no trash cans. Mm-hmm. And as the economy was collapsing there, waste is the first thing that goes to, to, to waste, really, there's just no collection of waste. People don't care about the waste. They're caring about where they're going to get their next meal from. They're sur- wow. looking for survival, water. Uh, and it was quite heartbreaking. And the, the thing to me that was really the most heartbreaking was when I, I'm in Egypt and I see all this trash piling up along the streets and I see a wall on one side of the street, this small little two foot stone wall. And I'm like, what's on the other side of that wall? I'm like, oh, that's a canal. And the third day there, I see and I see all this trash piling up alongside the canal. It's just heartbreaking. And I'm like, yeah. God, that, some of that's going to fall in the canal. Oh, no, it doesn't fall in the canal. It gets pushed into the canal. Mm-hmm. And I see men with big boxes and pallets, and they're pushing this trash off of the street down into the canal. And that's one of the reasons why it's one of the most polluted rivers in the world. It's the Nile yeah. River. That's where this canal feeds, the Nile River. Out of sight, out of mind, yeah. And it's just heartbreaking, but that's what they have to do to deal with their their waste there. And it's just heartbreaking. But as the, the wealth of countries grows, the environmental leadership does as well. And we've seen that with, with so many countries over like the U.S. over the last 50 years. Yeah. Our GDP has increased. People have gotten wealthier. Our freedoms have increased. Our, our environment has gotten much better. And that's what we need to be exporting around the world. I say we need to export our clean air around the world. And yeah. we do that with our economic prosperity, our energy that we're producing here, like propane and, and natural gas, and even coal. Mm-hmm. Even coal, because we produce it more responsibly here than anywhere else in the world. And we use with pollution control technology, the, the waste from coal, it used to be called fly ash. It doesn't fly anymore. It's just right. ash now. And that ash yeah. is used to strengthen concrete. It's a, it's a waste product. And they have found a, a need for that waste. Mm. And it's really so many opportunities to improve the uh, economic prosperity around the world, which will lead to incredible environmental leadership. Yeah, and I think that's where we need to get to. I was in Lebanon near uh, Egypt two summers ago, and it's the same thing. Uh, I didn't see a canal, but there was there's trash piled up on both sides of the road, falling into the street, and it's it's really heartbreaking. And it also makes you grateful to be in a country that I mean, there's pollution and there's trash in places, but I think people take a different responsibility for taking care of the environment and the place that we are given. So um, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I want to ask you one more question. It's a question we love asking all of our leaders is just what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? It can be about clean energy. It can be about any of that, but just in life in general, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Uh, Just get involved, get, get out a little bit more, step outside of your comfort zone. Um, It it took me a few years longer than I'd wish to, to really get involved. You know, I, I started coaching lacrosse. I started actually coaching lacrosse in Dallas and, and it was a couple of years after I wish I had. And cause I I've loved it. I've coached now for over 25 years. That's kind of my big stress relief, but that would be my, my big thing. And and I, I read a lot. I study business books a lot. Um, So I think that'd be myself is just have the grit, get out there uh, and, and do a little bit more, uh, to just try to make a difference and be involved and, and listen to people. 
Mm-hmm. Real quick, do you have a top three books that you could recommend? Wow. I, so I listen to a lot of audio books. And okay. so on the environment side, I'd say yeah. there's there's three books I'd, I'd highly recommend. There's uh, Fueling Freedom by Kathleen Hartnett White was probably one of the first books I had read uh, on, on this topic of human flourishing and energy yeah. poverty. And the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by Alex Epstein is a really good book. He's got another one coming out soon, so I don't want to I don't want to spoil a surprise, but yeah. I think he's going to have another release sometime this year. Michael Schellenberger's book Apocalypse Never is great. So on, on that's kind of on the environmental more work side, but I'm passionate about what I do. I, I love it. Yeah, to me. of course. It's, you know, I, I tell my kids it's not work if you love what you're doing and. Um, that's why I do it pretty much all the time, every day, cause I'm passionate about it, but I do read a lot of business books. I'd say probably my, mo- my favorite motivational speakers, Zig Ziglar, who passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that he has, he has taught me that has stood out is he, he says, you can have everything in life you want, just as long as you help enough other people get what they want. And so I've, I've always taken this, uh, this, this almost concerted intentional effort to try to help other people and build them up uh, and give them opportunities that they may not have otherwise. And I respond really well to people asking for help. And so, uh, or, or just asking for things even. And, and I tell people all the time, I may not be able to help you, but at least ask, cause you never know. And, and I may say no. And, uh, but that's, that's something I got taught growing up as a kid that the, my dad would always say, the only thing you get that you don't ask for is a cold. So if you want, if you, so if you want something, ask. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's, maybe that's what motivated me to get into sales. Cause I, I enjoyed asking people and, and didn't mind the the rejection one bit. Right. Uh, Cause I'm an optimist and I knew I was just that much closer to a yes. If someone told me no. That's right. And that's how I got you on the podcast. I just asked. That's right. Yeah. Yes. You asked. And I'm like, yep, let's do it. I love it. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time. It's been it's been informative. It's been educational and it's been a blessing. Thank you so thank, much. Thanks, Zach, so much. Check us out at lifepower.org to learn more. Uh, we appreciate feedback and uh, this has been a great conversation. So best to you, Zach.